Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to the official podcast of First Alliance Church in Great Falls, Montana, creating passionate followers of Christ. Today's message is from one of our elders. Today we'll be looking at Luke 13, verses 18 through 35, in our continuing series, A Year with Jesus. Last week, Pastor Tim called it a year-ish with Jesus. We started back in December of 2019 on our study of the Gospel of Luke, so we haven't yet entered the bonus round, but uh, you'll want to stay tuned for that because point values have doubled. (laughs) Today's passage is about the kingdom of God and is roughly divided into three parts. First are the descriptions of the kingdom. You'll have to join with me as I did not uh, get slides prepared, so hopefully you have your Bibles uh, either here or uh, if you're watching online at home. Uh, And join with me as I read uh, from the New International Version of Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 21. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted it in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. In last Sunday's sermon, Pastor Tim gave us an underlying principle of hermeneutics, that is, the science of interpretation, specifically of the scriptures. That principle is context is king. Before we discuss the meaning of what Jesus said, we should try to discover why he said it. Two weeks ago, Pastor John preached from Luke 13, 1 through 9, concerning our need to repent. Last week, Pastor Tim spoke about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees' overbearing interpretation of Sabbath law and that true repentance bears fruit. In both of the previous week's sermons, Jesus dealt with misconceptions of who God is and how he wants us to interact with him. So Jesus again looks to set the record straight with parables describing the kingdom of God. Verses 18 through 21 have been interpreted in two basic yet widely debated and divergent ways. The first view is largely positive. It shows the kingdom of God starting very small by using the smallest seed that grows in soil. The mustard seed, like the mustard plant it comes from, was well known to those listening to Jesus. While some species of the plant can grow up to nine feet tall, most are more like a shrub. In verse 19, Jesus likens it to a tree in stature, not a mere plant. This is a picture of how large the kingdom of God would grow while providing shelter for those under the Lord's protection. Likewise, the leaven in verse 21 is seen as a force for good. It is the power of the gospel to increase the kingdom. The alternate view, if not outright negative, is at least a warning. Here the mustard plant is pictured as a tree of abnormal growth, perhaps like a cancer large enough to let birds build nests in its branches. Commentary author L.M. Grant wrote, Such is the present condition of the kingdom. This is outward Christianity, Christendom. For the fowls of the air symbolize Satan's activity, 
And Satan has today taken advantage of the growth of Christianity to introduce innumerable hypocrites, taking a place as though they were actually Christians. This is the external character of the kingdom today. Grant called the leaven in the second parable its internal state. He said, in each, it is seen as introduced in purity, but eventually evil is admitted. For the kingdom has been entrusted to the hands of men who always introduce corruption into what God entrusts to them. The doctrine of Christ has been corrupted by subtle deceit, so the kingdom suffers this internal contamination in our present day. So, encouragement or cautionary tale? Which is correct? If you're looking to me to answer that, sorry, I'm not that smart. Scholars with multiple theological uh, degrees don't agree on this, so I'm supposed to have the answer? <laughs> I failed college calculus two and a half times. The half was when I took it the first time and got an incomplete. The two Fs were because I signed up for calculus classes at 8 a.m. College student, 8 a.m. Even I can do that math. Either way, I believe we can learn valuable lessons. If the correct interpretation is the positive view, note that the kingdom starts small. Jesus built a church with a small group of committed disciples. Pastor Stephen Cole, writing on Bible.org, says, In Jesus' day, the popular notion was that the kingdom would come with great fanfare. It would have a dramatic beginning, so that all would marvel. But Jesus is teaching that the kingdom would begin almost invisibly, without much notice just like this man planting the small seed. Previous to that, Pastor Cole shared this. The parable assumes that the man had a garden and he desired to reap a crop. Sadly, many professing Christians go through life without any concept that the Lord has given them a corner of his field to sow and produce a crop for him. He is the landowner to whom we must all give an account. Your garden consists of the people with whom you have contact to influence them for the sake of the kingdom of God. You should desire to see God use you to produce a harvest for him in your garden. Let me ask you, what's growing in your garden? Is it producing a harvest for the Lord? If yes, good. Keep up the good work of sharing the gospel. If no, let me encourage you don't lose heart and don't give up. Keep sowing the good news to those who need to know the Savior. Galatians 6 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. If the correct interpretation is that of a warning, the lesson is don't be taken unaware if people turn out not to be who they say they are. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. James tells us not to be surprised about adversity like this. Uh, from James 1, verses 2 and 3, and also 12. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, 
because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And then verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And again, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for good, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. According to Pastor Cole, this is why you want to be on Jesus' side. Spoiler alert, we win because he wins. If then you choose these parables as a cautioning, the second part of our text is definitely a warning even more alarming than the first, for it involves a separation and winnowing of the kingdom. Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30 are the demands and distinctions of the kingdom. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from, Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. The second part of this text finds Jesus teaching as he traveled when he gets this question, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Note first that he gave his answer not to the questioner, but to others around him. Luke records, he said to them. John Kelvin wondered if the question was asked because of the questioner's doubt that Jesus wasn't really having much of an impact on the nation of Israel. Kelvin wrote, these words were intended to withdraw his people from a foolish curiosity when they look around to see if any companions are joining them, as if they were unwilling to be saved but in a crowd. When he bids them strive or labor, he conveys the information that it is impossible to obtain eternal life without great and appalling difficulties. Let believers, therefore, give their earnest attention to this object instead of indulging in excessive curiosity about the vast numbers of those who are going astray. The second point in this word is strive, or the phrase make every effort as the NIV renders it. The Greek word used here is, and I promise you I will butcher this pronunciation, <laughs> agazomai, ag agonizomai. And from its root, we get the English word agonize. You might be thinking, wait a minute, Jesus isn't saying that works save us, is he? Correct. Jesus isn't saving, saying that our works save us in any way, shape, or form. The Bible clearly and repeatedly teaches salvation is by faith 
and not by works. One of the best-known examples is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But we also need to dif differentiate between works and work. Works, plural, refers to what we try to do to merit God's favor. Whether it seeks to supplement or replace Christ's work on the cross, it is the antithesis of grace. Philosopher and Christian author Dallas Willard summed up the dichotomy between works and grace this way. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Work, singular, is our response to God's love for us. It's a confirmation of our desire to shed our selfish old nature and replace it with the self-sacrificial and humble character of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this definition of work and the underlying attitude that accompanies it that is behind the word strive and the phrase make every effort. Evangelist and author F.B. Hole wrote, the word strive does not signify work of any kind, but earnestness, earnestness of such intensity as to be almost an agony. There is no real entrance save through the narrow way of repentance. In the words of Scottish pastor and author Alexander McLaren, the door of faith is a narrow one, for it lets no self-righteousness, no worldly glories, no dignities through. We must make ourselves small to get in. We must creep on our knees so low is the vault. We must leave everything outside so narrow it is. There must be effort in order to enter by it, for everything in our old self-confident, self-centered nature is up in arms against the condition, conditions of entrance. We are saved, excuse me, we are not saved by effort, but we shall not believe without effort. The main struggle of our whole lives should be to cultivate self-humbling trust in Jesus Christ and to fight the good fight of faith. Point three tells of the exclusionary nature of heaven and the kingdom of God. Luke 13, verse 24. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. People will try many ways to enter the kingdom. Good works, giving to charity, moralism, ministry, church attendance, even baptism. All these things are good, but they won't save me or you or anyone. And yet, humans persist to try any and every avenue to the kingdom other than faith in Christ. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The warning Jesus gives is that there is a day coming in which it will be too late to try to enter the kingdom. The narrow door is Jesus himself, and only Jesus. 17th century pastor and renowned commentary writer Matthew Henry called this a door of distinction and a, do a door of denial and exclusion. Henry continues, The door of mercy and grace has long stood open to them, but they would not come in by it, would not be holden to the favor of that door. 
They hope to climb up some other way and get to heaven by their own merits. And therefore, when the master of the house is risen up, he will justly shut the door. Let them not expect to enter by it, but let them take their own measures. Thus, when Noah was safe in the ark, God shut the door to exclude all those that depended upon shelters of their own in the approaching flood. Those trying to gain access to the kingdom said, We fellowshiped with you. We had communion with you. We heard you teaching. Notice that it doesn't say, We obeyed your teaching and your commands. Access to the kingdom requires a committed relationship with the Savior, not a casual acknowledgement. If it wasn't clear to them, or even us in the present day, Jesus makes it clear without equivocation in his reply and stinging rebuke. Luke 13, verses 27 through 30. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Did you see that there are two eternal destinations? Inside is the master's house, heaven. Outside is hell. Don't miss that there are only two destinations. Paul said in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every human being stands guilty before God, and all deserve hell. We've actually earned going to hell. Only those trusting in Christ for their righteousness will actually get what they don't deserve. We deserve to be outside of the master's house, but because of grace, believers will be inside. Only when you understand the bad news does the good news of the gospel become great news. What is your status with the Lord today? Are you trusting Jesus or yourself or something or someone else? Many of you here or those watching or listening online, have heard preaching and teaching on this before. I'm sharing this with you today, not just because it's the next section in our series, because, but because it's very easy and so subtle to slip back into a mindset and pattern of living that relies on what we do for God to gain his favor. Don't put the cart before the horse. Work of any value always follows faith. It can never precede it. Again, the words of Dallas Willard, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. The third part of, the pa of today's passage is the duty and deeds of the kingdom. Luke 13, 31 through 35. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
you who kill the prophets and stone those to sen uh, sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yet again, the Pharisees show hypocrisy, pretending to be concerned about Jesus' welfare. Of course, Jesus sees right through this. He was unconcerned about Herod or any of his treacherous plans. Jesus had kingdom plans and was resolute about doing the Father's will. Alexander McLaren wrote, Our Lord is saying in effect, My time is not to be settled by Herod. It is definite and it is short. It is needless for him to trouble himself, for in three days it will all be over. It is useless for him to trouble himself or for you Pharisees to plot, for until the appointed days are past, it will not be over, whatever you and he may do. The course he had yet to run was in plain, was plain before him in this last journey, every step of which was taken with the cross full in view. <clears throat> Jesus was pressing on to Jerusalem for our behalf. Despite a long history of rejection and violence towards God's prophets and messengers, Jesus' tenderness for Jerusalem is in full view as he declares his love for the rebellious city. Verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus greatly desires for Jerusalem to repent, but he knows this will not happen. Nevertheless, Jesus is determined to fill, fulfill his mission on the cross. Lastly, he addresses Jerusalem using her as a metaphor for the nation of Israel. As a 12-year-old in Luke 2:49, Jesus called the temple, "My father's house." As L.M. Grant said, now he disowns it as your house. Verse 35, look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Your house, because they rejected the Savior. Desolate, because they had rejected the Savior. To which I would add, without hope, because they rejected the Savior. This might sound somber. It is. The good news is it's not too late to stop trusting yourself and put your faith in Jesus and repent. Referring to Isaiah 49, verse 8, the Apostle Paul wrote in his second letter to the church in Corinth, this is uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 2, for he says, In the time of favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you now, is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. In Luke's gospel, Jesus talks often about the kingdom of God. By my count, he used that phrase 31 times and alluded to it at least nine more. That should tell you Jesus thought it was important. The Lord wants us to know that life, that is real living, is far more than what happens to us here on earth. Because faith and repentance are requirements for entrance, they too 
should demand our full attention. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it can be so difficult for us not to, for us to trust ourselves rather than repent. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, that he made a way for us to be in right relationship with you. Help us realize that our sin is rebellion against you and that the only way in your kingdom is by trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and repenting from them. We pray this and ask strength to live it out in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Follow us on social media to keep up to date with church news and events.